I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. Alright, yo, alright, this is how we'll do things COVID got a new strain Musk got the duffel back loot Sort of like two chains It'll make your mood change Billionaires are placing bets Gamble with the system Got everybody placed in debt Vote against your interest Get a grave regret Now they're going after Omar And they're making threats That's a no-no We can't forget Chris Cuomo Helping his brother out pro bono So understand when you see in my face It's like the trouble on the speaker See it vibrate When it comes to rhymes Motherfuckers seeing I'm great Make white boys say why it gotta be about race? Hey, hey, what is happening? What's popping, my good people? What up? My name's Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. And we are waiting on reparations. Hurry up. We are back. Had to take a little little load off for Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving? Happy Thanksgiving, by the Happy way. Thanksgiving. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Um, it was it was good. It was restful. I went up to my aunt's house. Um, my family lives on this like compound in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. Like, my auntie's house. My other auntie lives on the other side of my grandma. My other auntie and cousin live right down the street. And so um went out there, held some babies. Um <laughs> got very full um and very high um and it's it was interesting to me this is the first these are the first years in which i'm reflecting on how fucked up of a holiday thanksgiving is Mm -hmm. uh like deep you know deeply and gaining awareness about like the the new observance of the national day of mourning for indigenous folks on that day um, and my family is actually Afro-Indigenous. Um, I've known my whole life, but have not really like researched or or at all attempted to learn about our customs or heritage or history. And so with the passage of Indigenous Peoples Day as the first Monday in October, I guess, you know, Columbus Day uh, earlier this year, I started thinking about um, just like Indigenous life ways and knowledge and how that could be incorporated into, you know, policy making, but also just like, what does it mean to try to recover your lost heritage that it was been erased? Um, and so I spent some time on Wikipedia, uh, just reading about our tribe, the Halawasaponi tribe. Uh, my family still lives on like the tribal lands. Oh, um, and yeah, I learned a lot of interesting history. For example, under Jim Crow, indigenous people were treated the same as black people, disenfranchised from voting harassed and terrorized in all these ways um there was this resistance for for the indigenous folks they wanted i guess we we wanted our own schools we wanted separate stuff from black people because we didn't want to get lumped in with black people because black people were treated like shit but even down to like the um the birth certificate records and things like that um in this area 
Like you were either black or white. They didn't even have like a checkbox for if you were Native American. And so like all these ways that, you know, I just assumed I grew up and they just didn't teach me my history. But before that, there's like very systematic erasure of um, our our past, all of our past. Like you couldn't even, yeah, you couldn't even check the box to say I am a Native American on a lot of official documents, Um, which is partially why, you know, I grew up thinking myself black and I am black. I'm very proud of my black heritage, but like, you know, the the Indian shit got like just totally bulldozed and steamrolled generations before I even came along. So anyway, that was a day of reflection on all that stuff for me. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing where, I don't know what my studies and like reflection on that take me policy wise. And just like personally, it's like peeling back an onion way. Yeah. Turning all over all the stones. You know, it's like, I I don't, I'm not quite sure what the, like, just regular Liberian, like, holiday or or festivity is, or even if it even is a holiday. It's just Thanksgiving's always been something that we've celebrated, but Mm -hmm. never really, like, the, we never really paid any emphasis to, like, the, the, I guess story of Thanksgiving. It's always just been kind of an excuse. And in my household, it was always right. It's an excuse for family to get together. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And to give and to give thanks and to do all that sort of thing. But I don't know the 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 whole you know pilgrims and Indians and the turkey and it it was that was less of an important thing in or less of a thing when I was growing up. Yeah. And then I I do remember like you know being a kid. In the Ice T albums, there were a couple Ice T albums where he makes like an explicit reference to Thanksgiving and how he doesn't celebrate it because black people were in chains when they created it and shit. And that always stuck with me in the back of my head when I was a kid and just growing up. So like I just always had that sort of feeling that there's something wasn't right about Thanksgiving. So that by the time I got old enough to, you know, learn learn the things it wasn't really like a shock to me it was more like yeah i knew this holiday was some bullshit yeah speaking, turkey was good though yeah speaking of like shocking things um in sort of considering what like um return to like uh native american stewardship or like incorporation of their practices and like knowledges into governance looks like i've been learning a lot about the people who used to live in the lands that we now call Athens, Georgia, where I live. And it turns out that the Muscogee Creek people who have since relocated to Arkansas were a slave-owning tribe or slave-owning nation. So yeah, they actually actually owned slaves or like, you know, had people that were, um, yeah, captives that they forced to work. Um, And so- Was it like a warrior-based thing or were they like chattel slavery owning? Um, this is something we should perhaps do a future episode on because I'm still yeah. learning more about what that meant because I imagine with their different conception of property than, you know, the Eurocentric white supremacist framing of what property rights are. It might, it's probably a little bit different than like chattel slavery as we generally learn about or conceive of it. You know um, what I just thought about? Like, you said, like, you, okay, so... It's just okay. So whenever anyone, when, you know, when you're having like these conversations, right? And obviously, it's always you got to have the caveat of you know, I guess, looking at things in the past with the lens of today and all that sort of shit. But like, whenever like motherfuckers are talking about like, like if you're talking with somebody who is maybe like a conservative or or a Republican or racist or whatever, and they're like, oh well, you know, this group of people had slaves too. And that group of people had slaves too. And it's like the explanation that you give when you're arguing with these people is it's like, yeah, but it's not like it was wrong when that person did it. Yes. Because, you know, it wasn't race based and shit. And then, like, you stop for a second, you think it's like, damn, but it was slavery. It was still (laughs) slavery. And it was very wrong that they did that. And so, what does that mean for like, we talk about reparations. We talk about when there's, you know, increasing discussion of reparations for both indigenous and uh, African descendants of slaves. But like, you know, so, it, you know, that knowledge of that history, it does complicate those conversations in a way that I do hope that folks can like productively work through. 
because yeah, we gotta, you know, we're never gonna. Well, I don't want to say never. It's not. It's not something that's gonna get resolved. You know, shortly. Well, part but. of the whole, you know, I think part of the the most important step to the project of reparations, I guess, would be having as many people be informed of the past as it really happened. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that you can get that sort of, uh, you know, just general social understanding that you know these wrongs were committed and need to be righted and all that sort of stuff. You'd be shocked at how many people well you probably wouldn't be shocked you're an educator you probably know better than I do motherfuckers don't know a lot of stuff nah man nah man <laughs> like like the you know when the Jimmy Kimmel does the thing where they ask people the questions and the yeah. speech and shit uh-huh. yeah like that's that's just like indicative of a lot more than we would wanna we would wanna think yeah unfortunately. unfortunately so what's been going on in the news today oh boy I got a couple stories pulled up. You got anything? Um, I, I'm excited to talk about the things that you um you pulled. Oh, yeah, the, the okay. things that have also been on my mind. But yeah, what, what's on yours this okay, week? Okay, well, going from the most important to the least important, I guess, are the two things I got. So uh, there has been a new kid on the block in terms of COVID strains. The <laughs> new kid on the block. <laughs> The, dark, bro. H- how do you pronounce it? Omicron? I feel like I gotta say it Omicron. Like a, Omicron. Like I don't know. I, d- I just do something. it in a robot Omicron. voice every time. Yeah. The new Avengers movie. The Omicron strain that the white man is saying started in South Africa. Bro, <laughs> they now know that, yeah, this is such fuckery and ridiculousness. But, that, um, they, they now have confirmation that it originated in Europe or it was in Europe way before they realized. They were just identified in fucking South Africa and South the whole of the South African portion of the continent had to suffer as a result. Yeah. Um whack shit. Unsurprising, but whack. I'm surprised that they didn't like just straight up try some shit like that from the very beginning. Like, yeah. They were probably like wait, jumping and waving their hands and waving flags and smoke signals, like, bruh. <laughs> We're not saying it came from here. We're just the fucking, as well as I had mentioned in our interview that's coming up, we're just the best epidemiologists in the world because of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, like, we just happened to have found this first because we're fucking sick with it, with our scientific skills. But no. And literally <laughs> sick with it. Like, niggas is coughing. Niggas yep. is coughing. But nah, man. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel like the like Western media was... It was always eager to jump on. You know, it's funny that um, Trump got so blambasted for that, like, shithole country comment. He was just saying what a lot of people were thinking. (laughs) You know what I mean? Excuse me. You know what I mean? Like, in policy, like, policymaking, they might not say it out loud, but it's, like, indicating a similar orientation towards this whole fucking continent. Yeah, I think think that's, like, the... That is like the brand of, of the Republicans now. Um, you heard about that shit with Lauren Boebert and the the, the Islamophobic yeah. shit. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's like shit like that. Like it doesn't matter what punishment that they do to her or whatever, as far as in the she house. don't fundraise like a motherfucker. Off Hell that yeah, shit. because like all of her voters are de- they're with the shits. Like, and they're they like, all- oh, the liberals are trying yeah. to silence me. Can you give five dollars today? If you if you watch that tape, like. People in the room were laughing. You know what I'm saying? And first it was like nervously so, but then once they look around, it's like, oh yeah, no, yeah, we're all, yeah, we're all pieces of shit in here. Okay, it's, it's safe. And then the voters, her voters are with that shit, and Republican voters are with that. So you're absolutely right. When when Trump says something like shithole countries, it's not some gasping thing like, <gasps> I can't believe he said that. Because in honesty, fucking. At least 70 million people in America think that way, too. And what it, to me, um, conjures is that if that's what they're willing to say in public, what are they saying in private? Like, it's deeply concerning. Like, that scares the shit out of me. Oh. Like, to imagine what their private conversations are like. Um, Why do you think Trump doesn't want them to get the records? I know, yeah. I know, I know. People think it's for the January sixth shit, but I think it's more than that. I think if they get the White House records of the Trump years, 
is going to be more N words than the new Two Chains album, yo. Yeah. Woo! Dark times, dark <laughs> times. But Rays of Sunshine, what happened to Chris Cuomo? Oh, word. Okay, so yeah, that was the in the unimportant half, I guess. Um, Chris Cuomo was suspended indefinitely by CNN for trying to help his brother in the midst of his sexual uh, harassment allegations. Now, um, which I just feel like I'm going to keep it like, real with you folks. I yeah. don't know exactly how he helped his brother in doing this. He like when he was getting like sources for news stories, he was like letting his brother know, like, yo, this person said this. And it was out in sources. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Damn. oh, this person said this about you uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. And then also wow. the other way around, like coordinating, I believe, like spin. Like, hey, you know, like trying to pretty pre- like what we knew what was going on the whole time, to be frank, is that he was covering for him in well, some yeah, of their I, reporting. There's stuff that you would expect. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, there was a natural like, at least for me, I mean, I don't really watch Chris Como or follow it. But just knowing that they're brothers and one's a journalist and one's a politician. For me, there's just like, you know, there's like a built in amount of corruption uh, yeah automatic corruption so yeah. it's like for me it's just like a big okay the dude's probably gonna help his brother or show for right. his brother and you like, know cnn knew that yeah. and so what's happening so they probably should have just suspended him um, I mean, immediately even, even without malice but they, yeah they probably should have at least taken him off the air until the taking him off the off. yeah you can't report on this yeah whatever anyway um it, it's like i mean you you can pick any journalist you want but like i know Ander- anderson cooper's uh families like you know they're 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 rich and famous and shit and it's like yeah if like something happened with anderson cooper's family you would just expect that the dude's coverage would now be compromised right even even, know if, that. even if he's got the integrity to be like no i'm not gonna help my family i'm not gonna blah blah i'm gonna call it down the middle as the employer you've got to make that executive decision to be like all right nigga you like why don't you just why don't, you, why don't you sit back until this shit is done? Go collect your check, and we're just going to take They make the, the decision to hold these people accountable when they get when the they get caught as being complicit in the corruption by like, hmm, this is probably going on. We're not going to say anything because, you know, uh, even, people love people love this anchor. But yeah. I suspect this is probably going on. I was like, whoopsie-daisy, we got caught not censoring them or not, like, holding them accountable. So now we got to to cover our own ass. Yeah. But, I mean, even... Even with that, though, I mean, it's like that's outing sources and shit is not what I'm talking. What I'm talking about, I, I, I'm talking about more like underhanded shit. You know what I mean? Like I'll give favorable coverage or I'll cover the story in this way. That's the sort of shit that I would expect. But if motherfuckers is like, yo, such and such is writing this about you, yo, such and such is came to the CNN offices to drop the, like, if you're out in sources and shit, that's a step away from mafia shit, yo. Like, you know what I mean? If if the Trump administration was doing that, I would be all over them. So fuck these dudes with that shit. But I did call it a little ray of sunshine because at least, some, at least there's some accountability because yeah. generally when there's just media malfeasance, uh, nothing happens. No well, one's punished for- You should never be able to get another journalism job. If that's the case, though. Motherfucker's gonna start a sub stack and well, get yeah, a bunch I mean, of subscribers who love his chiseled jaw. Start, and start yeah, yeah he's gonna post fucking up, bank Post up roll. your OnlyFans uh, you know, workout yeah. and shit. You know what I mean? Like, do you? Yo, okay, legit, I would probably subscribe to that. Because it's not unethical. Because it's no longer, you know. But, yeah, no, he shouldn't do journalism anymore. All right, so what do we got going on today? So we opened talking about Omicron um, and this continuing crisis of public health that we are still facing, as well as public policy in reaction to public health challenges, you know, with the travel ban on South African countries, et cetera. So I thought it was appropriate this week to speak with a public health practitioner. So we're going to talk a little bit about what public health is, um, how it manifests in, like, practice in local communities, local context um and a little bit of just like uh hip-hop obviously because you tuned in away no reparations so let's get on into it this is uh demonte dismuke we'll be right back with that after the jump hey my name is jay shetty and i'm the host of on purpose i just had a great conversation with michael b jordan and you can listen to it right now 
Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, so today I am here with Desmonte Dismuke, host of Adult Public Health Podcast, which I had the pleasure of joining um, a couple weeks ago. Desmonte, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fabulous, except for, you know, having a, a slight little cold um, today. But um, speaking of, you know, being sick, I feel like um, with the coronavirus pandemic, which I, I don't think I have a Rona, but, you know, thinking about... Right. Um, things like viruses and things like that, you know, the pandemic has brought public health into mainstream conversation in a way that I don't think has ever been true before in our lifetimes, but still yeah. folks may have a limited scope of understanding about what public health can mean. So I wondered if you could tell us what public health is to you and describe your own public health practice. Sure, absolutely. So like, to me, like in a nutshell, public health, the way I describe it to people is like, okay, well, just think about you as an individual and all the things that make you, you. So whether that be uh, your physical health, um, your environment, all those things. So basically, so like if we start from an individual, then we go up in the air, like in a drone, then we get to looking at society as a whole. So now it's hot. How are all of these people doing and how do these behaviors dictate how we're moving throughout society? And do we need to encourage certain things to help people make healthier decisions or or do we need to, you know, you know, encourage certain type of behavior? So in a nutshell, basically, public health is just that overall, how are we doing as a people? Yeah, so uh, I think that gives us a good of foundation for what public health can mean, but could you talk a little bit about your own practice as a public health practitioner? Sure, absolutely. So what I do um, for a living, in addition to my podcast, is I oversee a program for youth ages 18 to 21 
that age out of foster care. So you're like, okay. Um, my program runs off of what we call five pillars of stability. The organization that I work for is uh, WellPoint Care Network, uh, formerly known as St. A. So essentially our five pillars of stability are housing, education, employment, caring connections, and health. If all of those things are addressed with the youth that we serve, then they have a more optimal opportunity to live a healthier life. And because they aged out of the foster care system, um, you know, this program exists to allow folks to just try to level that playing field. So there's just certain things like um, tuition um, scholarships that are available. There's something we call the Brighter Star Scholarship and folks can get um, $5,000 toward their education, housing assistance up to $300 a month. So we are literally hitting all of those different things. And the five pillars of stability pretty much mirror, um, you know, the World Health Organization's social determinants of health. Yeah, that's what I got thinking about. Um, when we yeah. talk about like a healthy future, I think that particularly, well, for me and other folks, um, that have become who who have had their consciousness raised through last summer's uprising, starting to think about and and the pandemic as well, starting to think about health in a in a broader way. Like you brought Absolutely. up housing and you house and you heard the refrain a lot: like housing is healthcare because you can't shelter in place if you don't have a place to go and things like that. So I, I wonder, I wonder when you talk about a healthier future, are you looking specifically at like physical health indices, or or does that extend to like behavioral, or is it a is it a Absolutely. even it's broader than that and thinking about just like like, health, like healthier life outcomes in terms of self-actualization. Yes, it, it's actually, yes, the big picture of just healthier life outcomes. And, and that's kind of like, you know, you look at, you know, sometimes we collaborate with other countries and we try to do things like alleviating um, diseases. So like if you think about it, certain things that we have, um, you know, that were popular when we were younger are just no longer a thing due to the advances of medicine. So, um, but then broadening that scope to make sure that, okay, well, can we make a healthier planet? So, you know, but it's all broken down to, you know, whomever is in leadership in that particular location. Mm-hmm. And so what has your interaction been with, I guess, the leaders in your location around issues of public health? Do you find that, um, your representatives at the state or local level are being responsive to what your understanding and your um, what how, the needs that you've identified through your work about how we can approach public health, both in like a physical health um, understanding, but a um, broader understanding as well. Yeah. So, and that's a great question. And I think I just so happen to be in the right place at the right, right you're in, time. You're in Milwaukee, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I, I'm located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, you know, so I collaborate with the Department of Children and Families, which is more like a governmental issue. I mean, uh, entity. But, you know, and that's how I'm able to to oversee my program. But then we have, you know, county supervisor, um, you know, like David Crowley, who, you know, oh, yeah, I know David. Yeah. So, yeah. So I facilitated a public health panel back in August and it was so cool having him on the panel because when he's talking, he literally within the first 60 seconds, he mentioned social determinants of health. So having amazing leaders like him um, leading the charge, I, I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time because he he hears what, you know, what what's needed in the community. That's good to hear, because as in my role as an elected official here on the local level, when I bring up, as we spoke about on your podcast, I believe, the fact that mm -hmm. like the CDC has now identified gun violence as a, as a public health uh, crisis, a public health issue, or when I bring mm -hmm. up, um, you know, youth development then as an avenue to improve um, public health outcomes by ending gun violence. So some of my uh, peers, particularly like older folks, perhaps mm -hmm. more moderate folks, it's, it can sound like, well, you're just twisting, um, you know, science or whatever to like to match your beliefs when really it sounds like you know, like in the world of public health as my, you know, as I understand it, as someone that doesn't practice but does interpret um, mm -hmm. public health understandings and findings to inform my work. Um, that this is actually more like, you know, the state of the state of 
um, the field at this point of understanding, of looking at these social determinants of health. And so um, we definitely, as a country, and then many localities have faced struggles with mashing what we understand from science and what we understand from experts to our actual um, practice as uh, in, in governance. And so I'm happy mm-hmm. to hear that um, in your setting, you found um, a lot of help, a lot of um, positive interactions with the folks that are making those decisions for the community. Yeah, and I mean, and we have an uphill battle. I mean, and I'm doing everything that I can, so which is why I wanted to start my podcast. But it's also, too, um, you know, there's a lot of different things going on in, for example, in the city of Milwaukee that we need to address these things on the public health level. And like, you know, I'm sure you've heard, you know, with your practice, like there's this push, not in just Wisconsin, but throughout the country, evidence-based policy. So it's like, you know, like you said, folks can say you're twisting it, but if you look at the data and look at the research, it's it's evidence-based. Yeah, and it's so hard to get people, it's, it's surprisingly difficult to get people to like, consider evidence-based practices. Like there's so many, so many practices that are just um, ingrained in us either through the media or just what we grew up with. And so that's what we, you know, what we expect and what we put push forward, this continuation yeah. of stuff that just like doesn't have any sort of scientific backing. Um, I definitely, I think, I think it's true of many, many kinds of government, both local and even at the federal level um, that people really struggle, you know, even even, you know, Democrats sometimes say like, oh, we believe in science, but like, what science? <laughs> like, y'all, yeah. and how is that actually impacting um, the decisions you make um, at times? Not not everybody yeah. is always like up with it or just like, you know, engaging with like the data and like. Yeah. Wow. Like and, that. and that's such a great point, because when you think about, you know, the last roughly two years now with what we've been going through with this pandemic, you can so different governments are making different decisions in regards to you know lockdown and this or that and when you look at it from a public health lens it's like those leaders are making decisions based on evidence as opposed to based on emotion or Mm -hmm. economy and it's really interesting when you can just take a step back and look oh wow they made that decision and they were able to you know, alleviate this, you know, the, 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 the severity of the virus in that area versus this group is really like, well, to hell with it. We're going to do our thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just very, very interesting. And that that's literally all public health because we're trying to push towards, you know, a healthier community so we can all truly go back outside. Yeah. And so this actually makes me think of like what's going on right now with like the Omicron um variant yes. of coronavirus that we've imposed this this lockdown, this travel ban from all these South African countries, despite the fact that uh, the variant's been found in Israel and Belgium and Ireland and many uh, white Western countries. And so in the name of public health, you know, we're making we're making decisions that perhaps aren't actually are actually more informed by emotion or even some racial animus more so than um, facts about like, you know, what is actually um, a threat to to the health of our communities at times. Absolutely. And, you know, like, like you know, the, the information I've been able to get my hands on this far, it's so new that it's just like, well, everybody's learning. And, you know, but some of the things that, like, this, the scientists are saying already is just that this probably is everywhere already. Right, but right. now we've identified it. Right, and it was like, identified in South Africa because they have the best epidemiologists in the world because of the AIDS and HIV epidemic is my understanding and so they were able to track it down even though yeah. it's probably everywhere already <laughs> yeah and it, it's just like you said it's it's some people are making decisions based on emotion others are making it based on science yeah well, we talked and, a lot about know, oh sorry go for it and the last thing i'll add is just like when you think about certain things it's just it, it makes you kind of think like well there's a lot of other things that we're deciding and we're you know doing because of our personal interest as well so mm-hmm it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, tough spot. Yeah, for sure. We've talked a lot about the science of public health, but the World Health Organization also defines public health as the art and science of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting mm-hmm. health through the organized efforts of society. So um, I've been increasingly like, you know, looking at the data, looking at evidence-based practices, trying to inform my um, governance and policymaking. But I'm interested mm-hmm. in this idea of public health being an art. 
Do you see that in your practice at all or your understanding of public health? And if so, where and how? I, I see it as an art because I don't think that there is, um, you know, it's just so tough as far as perfection. Like, you know, we could come to solutions a lot of different ways. And like kind of having that artist background is like just getting people to understand it's more like tr it's trying to convey that information. And I, I just truly believe that that that's that's an art form, you know, just trying to inform and help, you know, shape and mold behaviors with with honesty and mm -hmm. like, you know, truly with the people's best interest. I think that that's an art form. For sure. I mean, it makes sense to me that if a part of the effort is promoting health, that then is, is an act of communication, of communicating to people, you know, what will keep them healthy and what will keep them safe, which, you know, language is an art form, you know, communicating effectively is an art form um, to a certain extent. So that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. But I'm glad that yeah. we have kind of shifted to talking about the arts because you have somewhat of an artistic background as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I, talk to um, us a little bit about that. So I really am a student of, and I, I even tell my kids, I'm like, I am the, I'm part of the first generation of hip hop. Mm. I wear that, I wear that proudly. Um, and hip hop has influenced everything that I do. Um, how I lead, how I, um, you know, fellowship, it's, it's all in this, you know, under this umbrella of hip hop. And I, I just think about, the power of hip-hop you know there are other entities and organizations that have done some amazing things in creating social change but hip-hop is up there as well yeah so talk to me about the role you see hip-hop playing in making systemic change yeah i think it's um maybe because i was born into it it seems like it's always been there mm -hmm. i think what we're seeing less and less of is maybe folks in the mainstream talking about things but then we have you know, people like Kendrick Lamar, who are very, you know, they're informing, as is J. Cole. And, but I go back to like groups like Boogie Down Productions. Yeah. He's like KRS One, Common, and, you know, so many public enemy where they, they had this, um, they were conveying the stories of their, their neighborhood, which basically is conveying the stories of the conditions in which they live in. That's mm -hmm. public health. That's public health all day. So, and I think that's where I think look at it as an art form. For sure. Yeah. There's that consciousness raising aspect to it that I think is yeah. an important precursor. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think, you know, I don't think it's every artist's responsibility to do that. Um, but I always feel that there's always the right ones that are doing it that can help galvanize change. So I, I, it just seems like it's just this responsibility that. You know, every t 10 plus years or so, MCs pass that torch and, and it's always woven in within hip hop. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office. 
opened my email and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you talking about being born into hip hop, particularly being a, in the first generation of hip hop? Because now we've had several, you know, there's there's, um, right. you know, the second generation, I guess, probably on third or fourth at this point. Hip hop's been right. around for, what, 50 years. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? So what to you does being born into hip hop as like a first generation hip hopper mean? And what was that for you? To me, it's everything, because growing up African-American, like I don't, you know, I, I can do the 23 in me and it says like oh wow like you're 30 something percent Nigerian but it's like but I don't have that direct connection to mm -hmm. my Nigerian ancestry so like and then I can look at other folks and you can see oh wow that's um, you can see that culture hip hop was the first culture I was able to see mm -hmm. and be a part of and it, it's actually mine not one that was like that we had to assimilate to. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, in watching successive generations who are themselves also born into hip hop, but maybe taking it up in new ways, what has that been like for you? I, I think it's been amazing because some of the things that I've been seeing with some of the younger artists have been blowing my mind. And, and I mean that in a great way. Um, and what I say by that is... Um, um, so, for example, an artist like uh, Corday, or mm -hmm. also when you think about um, Essence, just uh, had like multiple covers uh, of Simone Biles and, and Naomi, and it was they're calling it radical self care. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm like, they not only do they get it, they're they're so open with their expression of of being their best selves. So it, I find it to be amazing with with the, the, the newer artists today. Yeah, I definitely think we're um, becoming a more inclusive community, though by, you know, steps forward and steps back with the kinds of truths that people are able to express in their music. Um, whereas previous generations um, may have had, you know, struggles with coherently and tackling and deeply tackling things like depression or homosexuality yes. and things like that um, for sure yes. but it's uh, interesting you bring up self-care I would be really interested to hear your um, perspective as a public health practitioner about um, self-care is becoming increasingly mainstream and yeah. I think at times co-opted by um, corporate like corporatist yes. forces <laughs> just like oh self-care is buying mm -hmm. this bath bomb or you have to take this expensive ski trip to Aspen um, and things like that. So where do you see self-care fitting into your practice or, you know, what you try to instill in your um, in the populations you work with? And what are you sure. think some of the barriers that people face um, sure. that, that you work with as well? Um, I, I would say I think it's, it's, it's so important in it. And like I, I was um, facilitating my, my first first conference um i think back in september and, and i went around the room and i asked people about self-care and one person gave the most honest answer she was like 
I'm still trying to figure it out and get it. I, I don't really understand it yet. I know what I'm supposed to say. And it, it, to me, that was just so powerful because I'm like, it has been become this cliche thing. So I'm trying to take the cliche away from it. It's one of the things that we discuss in our meetings all the time. And, and, I, and now I just say with my team, are you doing what you said you were going to do to take care of yourself? Mm. So that's kind of like, you know, how, how I go about leading. And the second part of your question again? Um, I think the second part of barriers that people face, I think you started to touch on that where you encounter yeah. clients or populations you work with that people yeah. just don't even know how to begin to confront that question of what they need and how they get get there. And and I agree with that because when you, um, the, the barriers for like the youth that I serve would be, you know, internet connectivity could help mm. self-care. Mm. But I don't live in an area that has Wi-Fi, nor can I afford it. So we say these self-care things, but music is my thing. So this is how I self-soothe. I listen to music. Well, these, these are some of the barriers that folks that, you know, young youth that I serve, they're, they're faced with when they, they tell me, Demonte, this is, they give me the real. So that allows me to do what we can to try to help. Like, you know, now, for example, I think it was recently released, like Oprah uh, donated, um, I forget the exact dollar amount, I think $20,000 or something to our organization wow. just to make sure youth had access to things like Wi-Fi throughout the pandemic. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's so interesting, the ways that we think about, um, particularly the, the issue of internet access is impacting education, ability for people to get jobs. But I didn't even think about the fact that, like, I, pro I probably know about self-care because of the internet, of seeing tweets about it or seeing something on Instagram, let alone, like, being able to get on Spotify and listen to my favorite music on a walk or something like that as a way to... Um, to undertake self-care and the ways that that could serve as a, as a barrier also. Absolutely. Because uh, there's yeah. all these meditation apps and things meditation like that. Meditation apps, yeah. Yeah. I listen to like bird sounds when I go to oh, sleep at night because I have Wi-Fi in my house. Yes. You know, stuff like that for sure. Um, so getting back to, you know, public health, particularly the WHO definition we discussed earlier, they talk about public health as the organized efforts of society, which to mm -hmm. me sounds like they're talking about collaboration in a sense. And if you think, Absolutely. for example, uh, uh, um, an, an example that I think is readily accessible to all of us during the pandemic, we talked about early on flattening the curve by wearing masks, social distancing and the like, they were meant to be collaborative efforts. Like I protect you and you protect me, but we seem mm -hmm. to struggle with that as a society. So can you talk to us about the power of co collaboration, both in public health and in community service more broadly? Yeah, because I, and to me, they, they go hand in hand. I think, you know, when you're talking about different communities making different decisions for their society, which helped, you know, help them flatten the curve faster than a country such as the United States. Meanwhile, there was a lot of back and forth with, you know, a lot of people that made big decisions about how do we collaborate? So, you know, I, I just think it, it's just so important that like collaboration is everything because we have, like we were talking about evidence-based practices, right? But mm -hmm. if you're not really working with communities that need these things met, how evidence-based is that research? So mm. to help society get better, you know, I understand that researchers make the big bucks and, you know, other folks that fall under this epidemiologist and all and, and things like that. However, the people and the communities in which we are trying to serve are also just as important. So if we don't collaborate, then we'll continue to have this power struggle and this authoritative view on public health. And it's like, yeah, I understand you're smart, but let me teach you how my people roll. Mm -hmm. For example, I mean, being black is so many things that I ate growing up that like, and now like I eat a primary, primarily plant-based diet. And it's like, that was a cultural shift for my family. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like collaboration is like the number one thing that will help really advance this, this field. Yeah. And I, I, 
I love that you brought up, you know, collaboration with communities between scientists and researchers and like the folks living in, you know, li like living the impacts of public policy, the impacts of organized efforts of society to advance health. Um, mm -hmm. Particularly it resonates with my own experience as a scholar that, you know, I'm out here as a community organizer, I'm working in community centers, going to cookouts, all this stuff. And as a PhD student, I have a lot of my colleagues that want to do community-based research, but just don't have the connections. So they come to yeah. me like, oh, how do we get in? Like, how do we recruit people to do this or that study? But there's such uh, resistance, particularly in, you know, African-American communities because of the ways that science has been sort of like harvested from these communities without anything given back. Like, oh, we got this data. Or, you know, you look at even an example, like uh, the story of like Henrietta Lacks, where like her cells were just taken and used for research and, you know, without her permission, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. All, the, all this history, of, of science sort of being very extractive and exploitative. People don't trust you when you show up to say, hey, we, you know, we're trying yes. to we're trying to do this study or that study. Um, do you think the field of public health is reckoning with this adequately at this point in time? Honestly, I feel like it's too early to to say. I know like back in 2018, you know, Wisconsin, you know, here the Public Health Association, they declared racism a public health crisis mm -hmm. um you know however it just seems it's so tough to say because it's like well we need more public health practitioners that look like us mm -hmm. so i think um you know I, I think the jury is out on that because you know through you know throughout the last two years how many times have, have we heard folks response just they just say tuskegee uh -huh, I'm like, right, yeah, but, right, right. but i'm like but I'm like, yeah, but I know people that look like us that are researchers now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard oftentimes that like the visibility of scientists that are doing this this work could be helpful in in smashing some of that stigma. Um, but the jury is still out. I think those relationships take a really long time to form, and those and that history takes a long time to absolve uh, or be absolved. So we hopefully oh, yeah. we'll, hopefully we'll see. You know, if these changes are happening. For sure. enough in this in this particular field that I think holds a lot of power. Um, I should have asked you this at the beginning, but perhaps I will now ask you this to close out. Um, sure. How did you get into public health in the first place? I think I just kind of fell into it. Um, you know, I'm a mental health guy, love mental health. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, but then I was like, I was working with youth, working with mental health, and but then it was like, there was a disconnect and part of the disconnect was therapists didn't look like the kids that we served. Mm -hmm. And as I got promoted, the the young men that I work with, I started to see less and less of an impact. But I thought, well, if I can get promoted, I can help more young men that look mm -hmm. like me. So <clears throat> long story short, I ended up seeing that, you know, it's gotta be something bigger. So I end up, I, I've taken, like I'm, my degree's on hold right now, but I'm, uh, I've taken like <clears throat> six, seven MPH classes. Mm -hmm. And essentially that's, that's what our society needs. And I just so happen to be overseeing this program where I, I got a promotion and I now oversee this program for you to age out. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like it was like a destiny kind of thing because, you know, these social determinants of health, I work with them every day with one of the most vulnerable populations, you know, in my, in my city. Mm -hmm. um, earlier, you, you said something that I thought was interesting. You love mental health, which I think is like sort of, I mean, makes sense. Who, don't, who wouldn't? Mental health is really important. But how did you get to that point of loving mental health? Um, I think it became with, um, so like one of the things that I experienced is I, I was going to um, school for human resources. And I was working as a recruiter and I talked about this on like one of my, my first podcasts, but like I didn't like how I was being treated by cops when I was driving out to the suburbs. Yeah. So I literally switched my major from human resources to human services management. Hmm. And and when I started, <clears throat> when I got my degree, I got my first job as a care coordinator for uh, an entity called Wraparound Milwaukee. And it was just like, I was able to help young people make better outcomes and normalize these different feelings and these different emotions. You know, now it's kind of like 
it's more publicly acceptable. But back when I started in like 2008, not many black men in the community were talking, were even talking about mental health. So I think that's what made me fall in love with it because I'm like, well, if I can be one of the people in my city talking about this and trying to do right by my community, like, I mean, it's, it resonated with me because I feel like I'm, I'm one of those people that, I, you know, I try to normalize like things like therapy. Mm-hmm. We had a recent episode on mental health and how it's addressed in hip hop. And we discussed some of the structural barriers to accessing mental health support, you know, our system of insurance and shortage of doctors, or, you know, therapists, both of color, but just in the field more broadly because of it's just not the most lucrative kind of doctor you can be. For sure. um, Where do you think some of the other what what do you think are some of the other barriers to accessing mental health support, including cultural stigmas in the community? Where does all that come from? Yeah, I think it's a lot of a lot of the um, issue with the barriers is just because, you know, again, can I trust this person who's supposedly an expert? Um, yeah, because, that's something I don't think we got to. But yeah, just trusting is like really yeah. difficult. So, you know, and I, I think, you know, if you look at the stats, like the last time I looked, African-American people seek therapy, like maybe like one third of the amount uh, of folks that are white. And it's just because culturally, we've just been raised to tough it out or mm-hmm. pray, pray through it. Not not knowing that there could have been some some schizophrenia in play which Mm -hmm. is why uncle so-and-so behaved that way so i think it's really really opening up the eyes to uh you know us as an african-american community so we can begin to take that healing another step for sure yeah that trust is really important and like hard to build um for sure and it's and the distrust is warranted again based on just Mm -hmm. the history of of health and science and black people in this country. Um, and yeah, I guess, yeah, we do have this culture of, and this is something we also somehow didn't touch on in that episode of just like being hard is valued. It's being really yeah. tough and being able to weather it all um, is is val- valorized. And I think that's a that also extends to broader culture as well. I mean, I think just like in a capitalist society, you're supposed to just work and For work sure. and expend yourself limitlessly. Um, just because that's what we're expected to do, but particularly so in um, Black communities, and that then gives rise, I guess, to, you know, gun violence, organized crime, interpersonal, you know, and domestic violence, things like that, which themselves are additional um, public health issues. People yeah. are showing up at the ER with gunshot wounds or, you know, dealing with toxic stress from living in an in a, uh, abusive household, things like that. Yeah, and I think it's it's some of the, it's one of those things that like part of my you know one of my roles is I used to have to go to court because I worked with young men that were adjudicated you know something happened and they got charged but then convincing the judges that were making decisions that keep feeding this pipeline to prison was an uphill battle because going in front of the judge saying no it's actually because of this diagnosis. These are some behaviors that align with that. However, with these supportive services, we can help this young black man as in like instead of you sending him away. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's all the questions I had. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to talk about? No, I just I just really appreciate um, the collaboration just in, in, in the spirit of it. I mean, being able to kind of catch you doing your thing when you presented, you know, at a summit on poverty in Milwaukee, you know, that right there, just seeing, I'm like, wow, it, it is, it's a good feeling to see that there are other people fighting this good fight. So, you know, just, I, I appreciate you and extending that hand in collaboration because if we can continue to inform each other, we can help our communities even more. Amen. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for being here. Desmonte, where can we find you and learn more about your work and your and your media? Absolutely. So you can find me just Adult Public Health Podcast, um, pretty much on all social media platforms. That's where you can learn about what I'm doing and how I want to amplify the voices of public health practitioners. So you can definitely find me there. Um, you can actually, you know, listen to the podcast and and provide feedback and, you know, let's just keep this thing going and helping our communities become better and better. Amazing. Thank you so much, man. 
No problem. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. You know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, we are back. We are back and we are closing it out today with a little preview of things to come. Next week, we're going to be talking about Dick Gregory. Mac, who is Dick Gregory? I I, I know him because he was like a, a vegetarian activist, but yeah. I didn't realize he had a very storied history otherwise. Oh, yeah. Now, Dick Gregory is a famous African-American comedian, uh, political activist. He even ran for office a couple of times. I think he ran for president, like I think back in the 60s and shit like that as a writer. Yeah, but. so we talk a little I bit mean, about that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna chat about him. Uh, who, who, don't we have an interview coming up? With yeah, so um, soon we're gonna have on my uh, esteemed homie Aaron Thorpe, um, who is a brilliant writer and political thinker. Um, gonna talk to us about retroism and the sense of futurelessness that drives this like nostalgia um, trend with media with fashion etc the sense that like millennials and gen z feel like we don't have a fucking future so we reach back in time to like you know get the 1980s looking t-shirt or like watch stranger things and things like that because we don't believe there's anything ahead of us so we're going to talk a little bit about that and it's and what it what it means for hip-hop um as well coming up very excited for that so i checked twitter and found that across the state of georgia Progressive swept conservative incumbents out their seats in mass. And so in preparation for discussing that next week, 
I thought I'd break it off a little something right now. Ha. Y'all motherfuckers thought that Georgia was Virginia, didn't ya? And that is why I've never cared for your opinion in the races we be winning. When the people who have held the power look out for the renters enriching themselves and selling our communities. But who would think that we'd let them renew the seats instead of electing some freshies out the junior league? If you believe in fighting, organize, and do it dutifully, then you can lead. That's the lesson from Tuesday Eve. Ooh. I'm Lingua Franca. We are waiting on reparations. Peace. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.